Chapter eighteen of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter eighteen. When you arrive in the roadstead of Tunis, you're not at Tunis. To get there, you have to avail yourself of one of the local boats called Mohans and land at La Goulet. The port, in fact, is not a port at all in the sense that vessels of ordinary tonnage can come alongside the wharves for only small coasters and fishing boats can do that. Other ships, sailing in steam, have to remain outside at anchor, and though the hills may shelter them from the easterly winds, they are at the mercy of the squalls that come from the east and north. A harbor there is absolutely necessary, accessible for all ships, even ships of war, and this can be made either by enlarging that of Bizerta on the northern coast of the Regency, or by making a channel through Lake Bahira. And when Captain Antifer and his companions had reached La Goulet, they were still not at Tunis. They had to go by the Rubitino Railway, belonging to an Italian company, which runs by the side of Lake Bahira, passing at the foot of the little hill of Carthage on which rises the chapel of St. Louis. When our travelers had left the quay, they found a sort of town, through which ran a wide road with governor's house, Catholic church, cafes, private houses, in fact everything European in character. They had to go as far as the palace on the shore, which the bay formerly occupied during the bathing season, to discover the first indication of oriental color. But the oriental color did not trouble Captain Antifer, nor did the legends of Regulus, Scipio, Caesar, Cato, Marius, or Hannibal. Did he even know the names of these great personages? He had heard of them, probably, as the good Tregomate had heard of the glories of his native town, and that was enough for his self-esteem. Jewel alone could have abandoned himself to these historic souvenirs if he had had not quite enough to think about in the present. It was with him, as they say in the Levant, it was of the absent-minded man. He's looking for his son, whom he is carrying on his shoulders. What he was looking for was Enogate, for whom he was, to his annoyance, going further away. After passing through La Goulet, Captain Antifer, the bargeman, and Jewel, bag in hand, they expected to renew the contents at Tunis, went to catch the first train at the station. Ben Omar and Nazim followed them at a distance. As Antifer had not opened his mouth, they knew nothing of this banker Zambuco, whom the caprice of Kamalik Pasha wished them to become acquainted with, much to the disgust, not so much the notary, who would have the same commission providing he did not retire from the search, as of Saouk, who now had to deal with two legatees instead of one. After waiting half an hour, the travelers took their seats in the train. They waited a few minutes at the station, whence they could see the slope of the Carthage Hill and the monastery, renowned for its archaeological museum, and in forty minutes they reached Tunis. They went to the Hôtel de France, in the European quarter, and took three rooms, rather bare of furniture, very lofty, and with mosquito curtains round the beds. The restaurant on the ground floor would provide them with breakfast and dinner at whatever hour might be convenient to them, in a very comfortable room. But after all, it did not matter, as they were not going to stay there long. Captain Antifer did not give himself time to go up to his room. "'I will find you here when I come back,' he said to his companions. "'Go, friend,' said Tregomain, "'and carry your ship by boarding.' It was his very boarding that Jules' uncle was anxious about. He had no intention of trying to cheat his co-legatee, as Ben Omar had tried to cheat him. He was an honest man, 
and perfectly straightforward, notwithstanding his originality, and he had decided not to beat about the bush at all. He would go straight to the banker and say to him, Here is what I bring you. Let us have what you have to offer in exchange, and off we go together. According to the document found on the island, the Zambuku must have been informed that a certain Antifer was going to bring him the longitude necessary for him to fix the position of an island in which the treasure was buried, and the banker would not be surprised at this visit. But Antifer had one fear, the fear that Zambuco did not speak French. If he knew English, Jewel could act as interpreter. But if he knew neither of these languages, he would have to call in another interpreter, and then they would be at the mercy of a third party with regard to this secret worth four millions. On leaving the hotel, Captain Antifer, without saying where he was going, had asked for a guide, and he and his guide disappeared at the turning of one of the streets, which opened onto the Place de la Marine. As he does not want us, said the bargeman as he moved off. Let us go for a walk and begin by posting my letter, said Jewel. And these two, after leaving the post office, which is next to the hotel, went down towards the Bab el-Bahar, so as to walk round the city by the crenellated walls which is two good leagues in length. A hundred yards from the hotel, Captain Antifer said to his guide and interpreter, You know Zambuco, the banker? Everybody knows him here. And he lives? In the lower town, in the Maltese quarter. That is where I want you to take me. As you wish, Excellency. In these oriental countries, they call you Excellency as if it were Sir. Antifer hurried towards the lower town, rest assured that he took not the slightest notice of the curiosities of the road. Here, one of those mosques that are in hundreds at Tunis, which is dominated by their elegant minarets. There, some Roman or Saracen ruin. There, a picturesque square sheltered by the foliage of fig trees or palms. Then narrow streets with the houses looking into each other, rising, falling, bordered by gloomy shops where laces and drapery and odds and ends are heaped together anyhow. No, Antifer only thought of this visit imposed on him by Kamalik Pasha, and the reception he was about to have. He had little doubt of that. When you bring a man two millions of money, you need to have but little fear that you will not be well received. After a half-hour's walk, the Maltese quarter was reached. It was not the cleanest part of this town of a hundred and fifty thousand souls, which does not shine by excess of cleanliness, particularly in this old portions. At the end of a street, or rather a lane of this commercial quarter, the guide stopped before a house of mediocre appearance. Built on the model of all Tunisian habitations, it was a big square block with a terrace, without external windows, and a courtyard, one of those patios of Arab fashion from which the rooms were lighted. The aspect of this house did not give Captain Antifer the idea that its owner was swimming, as he expressed it, in opulence, and he thought that this was all the better for the success of his plans. Is this where Zambuco the banker lives? This is his house. And is this his banking house? It is. Has he any other house? No, Excellency. Is he supposed to be rich? He is worth many millions. Phew, went Captain Antifer. And as greedy as he is rich, added the guide. Phew, phew, went Captain Antifer and thereupon he sent back the guide to the hotel. We need hardly say that Zambuco had followed them, taking care not to be seen. Now he knew where Zambuco lived. Could he get any advantage out of this banker? 
Was there an opportunity for arriving at an understanding with him in order to oust Captain Antifer? If he could bring about a disagreement between the co-legatees of Kamalik Pasha, could he not use him for his own purpose? It was certainly unlucky that when they were on island number one, Antifer had not let slip the figures of the new longitude. If Sauk had known them, he might have got to Tunis first and gained over the banker, at a price, if not got the secret out of him for nothing. But then he remembered that it must be Antifer and no other who, according to the document, must take the longitude. Well, Sauk would stick to his program. He would execute it pitilessly, and when the Maltese and the Malouin were in possession of the legacy, he would rob them both. Antifer entered the banker's house, and Sauk waited outside. The buildings on the left of the entrance served as the office. In the courtyard, there was no one. It seemed as abandoned as if the bank had closed that morning through cessation of payments. But rest assured, the Zambuco was not the sort of banker to fail. He was a man of middle height, about sixty years old, thin and nervous. Bright, keen eyes with a shifty look in them, close-shaven face, complexion like parchment, hair grisly and matted like a cap stuck onto his head. Back slightly bowed, hands wrinkled, fingers long and hooked. Although he was not much of an observer, Antifer felt that this Zambuco was not an attractive man, and said to himself that he would never have had much pleasure in his acquaintance. In fact, the banker was merely a sort of usurer, lending on pledges, who ought to have been born a Jew, and who was of Maltese origin. Of these Maltese, there are from five to six thousand in Tunis. Zambuco was reported to have amassed a large fortune in all the devious ways of banking, those which are practiced with bird lime on the fingers. Rich he was, and he was proud of it. But be it understood, you are never rich when you get no advantage from it. He was said to be many times a millionaire, and he was, notwithstanding the humble and miserable appearance of his house, which had misled Captain Antifer, showing a prestigious parsimony in all that concerned the necessities of existence. Was it then that he had no wants? Very few, and he took care not to increase them, thanks to his hoarding instincts. To fill up bags upon bags of money, and put his hand upon everything that represented any value whatever, he had made the sole business of his life. Hence the many millions in his coffers, lying there without his thinking it worthwhile to render them productive. It seemed unlikely, contradictory even, that such a man should have remained a bachelor. But if there must be old bachelors, is it not as well that it should be of this type? Zambuco had never thought of marrying, and so much the better for his wife, as the wits of the Maltese quarter used to say. Brothers, cousins, relatives of all sort he had none, except one sister. The preceding generations of his family were united to him. He lived alone in his house, talking of his office, talking of his money chests, having in his service but an old Tunisian woman who cost little in food or wages. This was the rival Antwer had to deal with, and it may well be asked what kind of service this unsympathetic personage had rendered Kamalik Pasha to deserve such a token of gratitude. It can be explained in a few words. When he was but twenty-seven years old, he was living in Alexandria. There he carried on with indefatigable sagacity and perseverance the varied occupations of a broker, securing his commissions from buyers and seller, acting for the would-be buyer before he sold it to him, and dealing in money the most profitable of all trades known to human intelligence. It was in 1829, it will be remembered, that the idea occurred to Kamlik Pasha, who was then, anxious for the safety of his fortune, coveted by his cousin Murad, 
and by the imperious Muhammad Ali. To realize his riches and take them to Syria, where they would be safer than in any town in Egypt. To carry out this operation, several agents were necessary. Those he applied to were all foreigners worthy of his confidence. They risked much, and at least their liberty in supporting the rich Egyptian against the viceroy. Young Zambuco was of the number. He did his work zealously and was rewarded handsomely. He made several voyages to Aleppo, and in fact contributed largely toward the realization of his client's fortune and his transport to a safe place. This was not without difficulties or perils, and after the departure of Kamlik Pasha, some of the agents he had employed, among them Zambuco, discovered by the suspicious police of Mohammed Ali, were imprisoned. For want of sufficient proof, they were released, but they had nonetheless been punished for their devotion. And as Thomas Enfer had rendered Kamalik a service in 1799, when he picked him up half dead on the rocks of Jaffa, so thirty years afterwards Zambuco had also acquired a right to the Pasha's gratitude. Kamalik did not forget, and his brief survey explains why, in 1842, Thomas Antifer and Zambuco, one at St. Malo and the other at Tunis, had each received a letter informing them that one day they would have a share in a treasure worth four millions of pounds, deposited in an island, each of them having the latitude, while a longitude was to be sent to them in due time. If this information had produced the effect we know on Thomas Antifer, on his son after him, it may be imagined that the effect was no less powerful on a personage like Zambuca. Of course, he said not a word about the letter to anyone. He shut up the figures of his latitude in one of the most secret drawers of his strong box, and ever afterwards expected every minute to behold the appearance of the Antifer announced in Kamalik Pasha's letter. In vain he endeavored to learn the fate of the Egyptian. He had heard nothing of the captain of the brigantine in 1834, nor of the taking to Cairo, nor of the imprisonment in the fortress for eighteen years, nor of the death in 1852. It was now 1862. Twenty years had elapsed since 1842. Antifer had not appeared, and the longitude had not been added to the latitude. The position of the island remained unknown. Zambuco, however, had not lost confidence. That Kamalik Pasha's intention would be realized sooner or later, he did not doubt. In his opinion, the said Antifer was as safe to appear on the horizon of the Maltese Quarter, as a comet announced by the observatories appears in the sky. His only regret, a regret very natural with such a man, was that he had to share the legacy with another. But he could not alter any of the dispositions made by the grateful Egyptian. But the share four millions appeared to him to be monstrous. That is why for years he had been heaping reflections on reflections, and imagining thousands of combinations having for their object the placing of the whole sum in his hands. Would he succeed? All that we can say is that he was well prepared to receive Antifer when he came with the promised longitude. It is needless to add that Zambuco, although he knew little about navigation, had ascertained why it was that the union of the latitude and the longitude would give the position of a point on the Earth's surface. Then he also fully understood that the two legatees must be united, and if he could do nothing without Antifer, Antifer could do nothing without him. End of chapter 18